It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Credit cards. Are they really your flexible friend? UK investors cast the net overseas for outsized returns and the underrated virtues of simplicity in financial planning. Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's weekly podcast on personal finance and investing. I'm James Pickford, Deputy FT Money Editor, and I'll be giving you this week's money news in downloadable form. How comfortable are you with credit card debt? Are you a stickler for clearing your monthly balance, or are you happy to punish the plastic with little thought for the consequences when spending on clothes or holidays or restaurant meals? The answer could determine whether you are among the 3.3 million people in the UK who are stuck in so-called persistent debt, where their repayments are constantly eclipsed by interest and charges on the card. You might even be wealthy enough not to have to worry about running a card into the red, but if you don't understand how cards work, for instance knowing exactly when charges are levied and how zero interest cards work, you can be landed with substantial costs. Lindsay Cook, the FT's Money Mentor columnist, has been looking at the use and abuse of credit cards for us and is here to tell us about it. Lindsay, welcome back to The Money Show. Credit cards can be pretty useful if you want to make a big outlay on something and, and spread the payments over a long period. Surely everyone already knows that if you don't pay it back, you get hit with interest. So is that so difficult? Where are people going wrong? Well, first of all, I would say credit cards are great if you want to spread the cost over a short period. If you want to spread over a long period, you should be looking at lower interest personal loans. Last mm. year, the Financial Conduct Authority produced a report on credit cards and it said that 20% of the people who paid interest on their credit cards weren't expecting to do so. Now, that's because there are all sorts of different um, rules on things like zero interest transfers. You may get everything that you move over from one bank to another interest-free, but any spending you do immediately may incur interest or maybe after 12 months instead of the full period of the interest-free so it's confusing. It doesn't help people to sort out um, what they've got to pay. Now, when I get my monthly credit card bill, it says on it that I can make a minimum payment to prevent myself being charged a, a penalty for, for not paying. Is that minimum payment a good benchmark figure for paying off the debt? Absolutely not. If you want to pay off the debt, you pay as much as you can. It can take more than 20 years if you have, say, £3,000 on your credit card, don't spend anything else over that 20 years. You can It can still take you that long by making minimum payments. The people who pay most interest 
can pay £2.50 for every pound they originally borrowed. And if you've got a spending problem, or even if you don't have a spending problem, but you're just a well-off person who likes to spend heavily on cards, but not necessarily pay for the privilege, why wouldn't you go for one of these zero-interest cards that we hear so much about? If you are disciplined and the card allows you to spend without incurring interest, then it may be a good idea. The best way for zero-interest cards to be used, in my view, is you transfer money to them, then you cut up the card, you don't spend anything, and you note, you pay by direct debit, the amount that will clear the balance. You can then keep your old card and just do a bit of spending on it and pay it off each month, Mm. so that you're not paying lots of interest. That's very, very sensible. Now, one of the things I like about a credit card is the fact that you get this protection if something goes wrong. So if you buy something that turns out to be faulty or doesn't arrive or the seller doesn't exist, you don't lose your money. I don't think you get that with a, credit, a debit card. And, and it's a pretty big advantage, isn't it? It is a big advantage. The Consumer Credit Act 1974 allows people who buy items between £100 and £30,000 to be able to go to the credit card if the vendor disappears, doesn't provide the things. There are some new complications because of the way we're shopping, and so you have to be aware that the contract is between you and the credit card and also the person selling the item. If you go through one of these online marketplaces or you buy tickets from a third party online, you may not have the cover. And I would say with things like theatre tickets or concert tickets, they are probably the things that are least likely to turn up or to be in the wrong place and not the right value. So you need to check what you are covered for. And sometimes the agents will have their own scheme because they know that they're vulnerable there. I see. So it's the risk of there being a middleman between you and the credit card. uh, Absolutely. And if you let your partner or your children have an additional card on your account, they are not covered by it either. Mm. So are there any other features of credit cards, you know, good or bad, that you think we need to remind our listeners about? Well, I'm a big fan of credit cards. It may not sound like it so far, (laughs) but I am. I use them for all my shopping. They allow me to get cash back. I've got the flexibility. I work mine, so I will shop. If I'm buying big items, I'll shop them, uh, buy them on a day just after my last statement. So I've got 56 days to, before the bill and I pay in full. Um, you get the protection under the Consumer Credit Act. You're also protected from fraud. If you're in the street and somebody picks your pocket, you lose the £200. If your credit card goes missing or somebody clones it, you will be covered unless the credit card company thinks you're complicit. The maximum they can do you for is £50. They're useful on holiday. Some of them have excellent exchange rates, much better than changing at travel bureaus. And as I say, cashback is a good thing. Yeah. And I mean, when I hear the the figure 3.3 million people, that's the number of people in trouble with a credit card. Sounds a lot. I mean, how do we compare with other countries? Well, we are the world champions when it comes to using credit cards. We use them more than America, which staggered me. (laughs) Germany is at the other end of the um, scale. They use cash for 80% of their purchases. Thanks very much there to Lindsay Cook. You can read the full FT Money cover feature on credit cards later this week at ft.com slash money. Now, we're a week into a new tax year, and this one carries a bumper ISA allowance of £20,000 well up on the 15500 or so thousand limit of last year. We don't know yet how people are going to invest. It's far too early. 
but we can see some interesting trends coming through when we look at where people put their money in the run-up to last week's ISA deadline. FT investment writer Amy Williams has identified some interesting indicators by asking the big investment platforms which funds did well and speaking to experts about where they see the buying trends. Amy, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So you've been looking at the last three months of trading before the April 5th deadline. What have you turned up? Interestingly, investors seem to be moving away from their home market. So last year, UK equity income funds were the big favourite. And there's no doubt that investors still do like uh, income and, and UK income in particular. But there seems to be a movement towards more global and emerging market funds, which is something that we didn't really see last year very much at all. This is just looking at the funds that are selling best through retail brokers like Hargreaves Lansdowne. But it's backed up by data from the Investment Association, who are the UK's asset management trade body. And they have found that UK funds have lost nearly $6 billion over the last year. Um, and global equities and emerging markets funds have been among the top sellers. So this is, this is definitely you know, a shift from UK towards more global funds. So there's a willingness to look further afield. Does that mean we're getting more adventurous with our money? Or is it more that we're getting worried about British companies, the British economy over the next few years? What, what are people telling you? I think there's still a sense that people are a little concerned following the UK's vote to leave the EU. Obviously, then we saw an immediate shift away from companies that were focused on UK earnings into companies that were more outward looking. So we had the tail of the two footsies with the FTSE 100 became much more popular than the FTSE 250. The FTSE 250 is filled with companies that have more domestic earnings and the FTSE 100 is big international companies. So it's kind of an extension of that trend. People are looking at more global equities or even at emerging markets, which are higher risk, but it's more about trying to kind of diversify, move away from just having UK funds a little bit among retail investors, I think. Are there any particular emerging markets that we're moving into? Well, India seems popular. So um, there's one particular India fund that appears on the top 10 funds selling uh, through the couple of brokers that are collecting this information. I mean, the Indian stock market's done very well. So over the past five years, um, it's risen 55%, according to the MSCI India Index. And some of the stock pickers, the active fund managers in that space are doing quite well at doing even better than that. And this is something that UK investors have, have picked up on. Emerging, fund, uh, emerging market fund managers have been looking at India for a while. And so, I mean, they're, they're sort of professionals looking at all emerging market countries um, and they've selected India as, as, as their one to watch. So it, it kind of makes sense that this trend is filtered through to, to retail investors. Mm. And is there any evidence uh, from this data that UK investors have picked up on the Trump trade? Well, you would expect to see investors moving into US equities a little bit. Obviously, with the election of Donald Trump, the US stock market has gone up quite significantly. But actually, there aren't really any US equity funds in the bestseller list. There's one, Hargreaves Lansdowne had a legal and general US index funds. That's a passive fund, which makes sense because there's a lot of data showing that actually US active fund managers don't do very well when it comes to beating the index. There are a lot of stories around and written by the FT and, and other newspapers saying that actually you're better off buying a passive fund if you want to get exposure to the US stock market. Thanks very much. That was Amy Williams, FT investment writer, and you can read more on investment themes on ft.com money or in the FT Weekend newspaper this Saturday.
It seems that one of the big dilemmas for quite a number of our readers at FT Money is the question of whether they should transfer out of their final salary pension. The reason this has come about is that conditions in the bond markets last year led to some very generous transfer values. If you do make that choice, though, you are swapping a certain payout in perpetuity for a return that depends on the performance of an investment portfolio. For a lot of people, the potential gains of investing are outweighed by the peace of mind delivered by an annuity. Simplicity in finance is a big plus for Jason Butler, our regular columnist on wealth management issues. Jason has been writing about the issue in his column this week and is here now to tell us about it. Jason, thanks for joining us. Uh, Now, I reckon I'm pretty good with my finances and I'm sure many of our listeners are. Why shouldn't I choose a path that's a little bit more complicated, that requires more of my attention and my thought, if I'm confident that it's going to earn me a better return? Well, there's nothing to stop you doing that. Uh, But in all my experience of working, literally hundreds and hundreds of people over 25 years, I find that um, the more complex you make things, the harder it is to understand them, the harder it is to manage them, and the harder it is to appreciate the downside. So I'm not saying that people um, shouldn't uh, forego annuities or shouldn't transfer uh, defined benefits. I'm saying that one of the key factors of any decision that you make about finances is one, how easy is it to understand, not just now, but as you get older. Because one of the problems we have is that studies show that we decline in what we call our cognitive ability, which is basically our ability to uh, deal with concepts and finance issues and so on, from the age of 60 onwards, about 1% to 2% per annum. So essentially what you're doing is you're putting yourself into a situation thinking about your financial capability that you have now, but not anticipating it's only going to get worse for most of us. Some of us faster than others, and some of us will be you know, bright as a button to or 100. But it is a factor which I don't often see considered when people are swapping simplicity for complexity. I mean, can I not outsource the management of this complexity to someone else, say a financial advisor or a wealth manager? Well, you can't outsource the responsibility for your finances for Mm. making the strategic decisions. Just like the CEO of a company, you might employ great people. But at the end of the day, the buck stops with you. No one will care about your money and your future and your well-being more than you. And so I think the point is, is that whilst there are some very good uh, advisors and very good investment firms, etc., and some um, ethical and honest and fair charging services, the fact of the matter remains is that the more people involved in your finances, the more cost, the more complexity, and the more that things can go wrong. And so I think the issue here is that you need to be thinking about if you're taking on complexity, first of all, do you need complexity? I mean, people think annuities, for instance, are bad value. They may have been bad value compared to what someone could buy 20 years ago, but annuities per se are not bad value because what most people want in old age or in older age is a continual guaranteed secure income. They don't ask for complexity. And the problem you've got is that the thing I talk about in the article is sequencing risk. This is the issue of if returns in the early part of your sort of drawing out of your money from your portfolio or your pension are sort of um, very poor in the first five to 10 years, that can have a really devastating effect on your overall 30 or 40 year retirement period that you're drawing money from. And that's because once you take money out of a falling portfolio, it's gone forever. It can never recover. Mm. And paradoxically, the older you get, the more risk you can cope with. So in other words, the way to think of it is that if you can avoid taking withdrawals from your portfolio for the first sort of five to 10 years of your retirement, or you can start off with a lower risk portfolio and gradually start increasing your risk exposure to risky assets, 
paradoxically, you're probably going to increase the chances of your portfolio being sustainable over the long run. And that's called sequencing risk. And not everyone agrees with it. But if at the end of the day, you have a poor outcome in terms of a number of returns in the early part of your withdrawal, that is going to potentially mean you run out of money before you run out of life. How realistic is it to try and achieve simplicity? I mean, is it, some, is it always possible, particularly where people have family trust structures or complex tax planning issues? Well, I think the point is, is that I think the same was uh, a man with a hammer sees every problem as a nail. And I think there's two types of professional advisor or service provider. One that needs complexity to justify their existence and their fees and to wrap the kind of make it look really great and clever and smart. And then there's just the other solution where they desperately want to help you achieve something that they think is the problem, but they haven't listened to what your objectives are. So what is the point in doing complex inheritance tax planning if you're going to leave the bulk of you, you need most of it to live your own life, and that you've dealt with most of your family and friends in an appropriate way in your lifetime, financially or whatever, and you're going to leave the rest to charity. So I think the problem is, is this twofold, is understanding the motive and the intention of the people who are either trying to sell you something or selling advice or support services. Services. It's not that they're bad people, but that they look at things from a different prism. Mm. Uh, and it's very rare that I find that, that a firm really understands a client's true objectives. And if you really actually say to yourself, well, what's the simplest way that I can achieve? First of all, this is my objective. What is the simplest way that I can achieve that objective? And then only build complexity in if you need to. So giving you a practical example, if you're in pension income drawdown, consider each year the potential for annuitizing some of your fund because that might be the right thing. Just because you start off in income drawdown, withdrawing from the fund, doesn't mean you have to stay in it for the rest of your life. Oh, interesting. So thanks very much there to Jason Butler, whose column you can read online at ft.com money or in the weekend FT. Have you got a story you'd like the FT Money team to follow up or a question to pose to our team of financial experts? We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at money at ft.com, tweet us at at FT Money, or comment on our articles online at ft.com slash money. The Money Show will be back next Thursday at the usual time. Goodbye. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.